Oh, hello, and welcome to the Community Experience Podcast. We are so glad you're here. If you're one of our regulars, you're probably wondering why we haven't published in a while. We actually chose to sunset the show in early 2023, but the feed will stay active because so many of the episodes are timeless. If you want to learn more and search our back catalog, you can visit smartpassiveincome.com slash cxpodcast, all one word. Hey, we have an amazing event coming up, the Expert Advantage Workshop Series, where every day for a week, starting on Monday, May 20th, it's myself and another expert coming on to present to you about various kinds of things to help you with your brand and your business. Our brand new experts in residence and pro are gonna be there to co-host these workshops with me, and you're not gonna wanna miss it. You'll have a chance to ask all of them questions, and it's completely free to join. All you have to do is go to smartpassiveincome.com slash advantage. Wednesday, May 22nd, we're gonna be talking trademarks, copyrights, how to know when to do it, what IP can you do it with, and the common pitfalls that most people fall into when it comes to intellectual property. 101 with Yasmin Salman Hamdan, and you're not gonna wanna miss that on Wednesday, May 22nd. And then finally, to finish off the expert week, on Thursday, May 23rd, we're gonna be talking with Pamela Slim, about how to monetize and scale your IP and position it and package it in a way that is unlike anything you've really been taught before. Incredible value from Pamela and all of our experts on our Expert Advantage Week. And all you have to do to sign up and join and get all the links that you need is smartpassiveincome.com slash advantage. Again, one more time, smartpassiveincome.com slash advantage. Join us on our Expert Advantage Workshop Series. You're not gonna wanna miss it. Again, smartpassiveincome.com slash advantage. So when it comes to community, safety is always such an important thing. Creating an environment where people feel welcome, where they feel like they're around people that they can trust. And in order to do that, you need to create that right kind of environment. You need guidelines, good guidelines, internal and external, and a good code of conduct. And our guest today, Bex and John of Queer Design Club, have some of the best stuff out there and really great perspective to bring. As you can imagine, uh, creating a club like Queer Design Club definitely comes with just a lot of need to make sure that everything is buttoned up, that everybody feels good in their environment. They're wonderful people who've built a beautiful community. They have a lot to offer us. So let's get into the conversation with Bex and John from Queer Design Club on the community experience. Welcome, everyone, to the Community Experience. I'm Tony, and with me, I've got Jill. Oh, hello. Jill, I just always love when I hear of a story of people who met on Twitter and then ended up, you know, just doing something amazing together. And so the story that we're going to hear today of these two wonderful folks is heartening for me. I love it. Yeah, same. There's something just really sweet about their story. I'm looking forward to talking to them. So we're going to get into a topic that is so important, so valuable, one that I know you have some strong feelings about, uh, community guidelines, codes of conduct, so important. It is the cornerstone to your community. No big deal. <laughs> you know, and I think one of the things that when I, when I got started, I feel like I was tempted to kind of avoid having to do it, you know, thinking like, oh, you know, everybody's going to get along, you know, it'll be fine. And 
you know, it really, I think the perspective that we have here is, is one of, no, you know, if you want your space to be accommodating and supportive of different kinds of people or anyone really, then it really helps to get everybody on the same page and establish some shared language of what it is. So they're going to tell us a lot more about how to do that well. I know you're fawning over the document they have on their website. So we'll learn a little bit about that. It's true. Yeah. And (laughs) I just have to, you know, say, I'm glad it worked for you, Tony, to not have rules, but. (laughs) No, I I quickly learned. (laughs) Okay. I was going to say, like, you are the exception. It was just what I was getting started. It was like, oh, you know. And then it blew up in your face. uh, Yeah. I was disabused (laughs) of that very quickly. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I was going to say, I was was a little impressed that you could even get away with that because to your listener, it's a terrible idea. And and just a, a final point before we get into the interview that I want to make is another advantage to having those is it it helps people determine if it's the right community for them. People can self-select in or out. And there are many people out there that are very hesitant to join communities because of past experiences or life experience. And so to see that they are seen and protected, if you will, um, through zero tolerance policies of harassment, things like that. You'd be surprised at how much importance that that has for many, many people. And it's always a great idea to have that in place. So I'm excited to kind of get a little bit of their design perspective on how to, you know, how to design things great to make a community more accessible. And, uh, and talk a little bit about how to design for uh, LGBT folks in an organization community as well. So buckle up. We're going to have a great conversation and stay tuned for our conversation with Bex and John of Queer Design Club on this episode of Community Experience. Okay, Bex and John, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to have you on the program. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Yes, welcome. So first, just maybe tell us a little bit about the two of you, the work that you're doing, how you came uh, to be in the position that you're in, and then we'll kind of go from there. So I'm a designer. I've I've been a bit of a generalist for uh, oh, over a decade now, um, and... I've always been really passionate about the intersection of design and community. I actually got my start in my design career was in-house at a nonprofit health center serving the LGBTQ plus community. And so that's something that's always stayed really close to my heart, um, how design can be used for social impact. And that was one of the things that led me to co-found Career Design Club with Bex. And I'm Bex. I am a Trini uh, graphic designer and art director now. I studied design in New York City and kind of realized that I didn't know that many. um, I went to a very Catholic university at St. John's, so I did not know that many um, queer graphic designers that studied design at a Catholic university in Queens. So (laughs) when I left college, that was basically when I was really looking for a community. And um, I took to Twitter and ran into John randomly. And we had both kind of been noodling on ideas of meeting other LGBTQ designers, thinking about that. And that was kind of when we teamed up 
and formed Core Design Club. Yeah, it was it was very random, our connection. Um, we didn't know each other before. And I was actually at a, a community presentation around designing community. It was, it was being held by a pair of conference organizers and talking about how, how they built their community. And I was, you know, I had similarly been thinking, I, you know, I don't know that many queer people in design. I don't know who in the, you know, history of design was queer really. And maybe I should just form a community to answer those questions. The event was open bar. I was a little, I was a little uh, enthusiastic. I grabbed a Twitter handle that night and tweeted out an intention to, to do this thing without much thought. And um, then it turned out that uh, Bex also had had that idea and she had a deck going around what this community could be. And uh, we really shared a lot of the same vision and, and vibed well together and, and it just took off. Yeah. That's so amazing. I feel like this is, it's an important story to tell that, you know, sometimes when you are seeing that there's a gap, when there's a need for a, a potential community, there's probably somebody else out there who feels the same and if you're lucky, you can spot them early on and then, you know, maybe become collaborators. And that just makes everything easier for everybody. Definitely. On Twitter is such a great place to, to find those people. Like we're so lucky. There's the good and the bad that comes with the, the social technologies for sure. That's a whole conversation. But to be able to send a tweet or search a hashtag and be like, oh, this person is thinking the same thing. Suddenly you have a partner in crime, if you will, to, to build that that idea doesn't feel so lonely. So it's very beautiful. Yeah, I think one of the most uh, magical things that we really figured out about QDC was that it kind of, we kind of started it at least just as a little side thing as like, oh, it's just a little Slack channel and it's just a little directory. And it very quickly kind of grew out from under us in a way that we totally, I don't, I don't think we expected. And that's when we, when we, I think, realized the need for that community outside of our immediate wants for a friend group or a circle. You know, a lot of people actually needed QDC more than we ever knew. And I think there's something really beautiful and that's what's still bringing people together today is that, you know, students who come out of college, students who don't have access to a queer community where they live, um, a lot of people who are maybe middle of their life and coming out for the first time or seeking community for the first time. And I think it's nice that it's niche to the design industry, but it's also just something that everybody kind of needs at some point, right? Yeah. I think the queer community too has always been very participatory, I would say. Like um, our members have really not just looked to us to provide this resource and this space for them, but they're very engaged with it and they've really shaped it to what it is today to the point where I've actually stepped back from the management of the community, such co-founding it. Bex has been running it entirely herself and with a, a community board. The fact that the community picked up that momentum so quickly was really impressive to me. It's a sign of a very healthy community. We're trying. <laughs> we're, we're really trying. I think trying. you're there. I mean, looking... I'm actually curious. So like you mentioned, um, you know, you launched it and there's kind of this rapid growth that maybe you didn't expect. When I look at it now, just coming in, not knowing any history, I mean, you have it dialed. It's very clear purpose. Your code of conduct is like A plus, so thoughtful. Everything I help people 
build community guidelines and codes of conduct all the time and looking at yours, I'm like, this is actually going to become one of my examples of this is the best. It's so good. And I'm curious how that came about. Did it organically grow with you or did you put that in place afterwards as, as things grew and you were trying to um, figure out what the boundaries were of your community and what acceptable behavior versus non-acceptable? Like, talk me through your, your guidelines. We started with them before we even launched. We, we knew that they would be so important to the space that we were trying to create and the work we were trying to do. Uh, I think that's maybe an advantage uh, that we have compared to other people who are founding a community being so close to tech and design. You get to see it done wrong a lot. You get to um, you know, see on platforms like uh, Twitter or Facebook companies grappling with the reality of large communities on a daily basis. And while we were really optimistic for the type of community we were going to build, we wanted to be realistic about the challenges that come anytime you get a large group of people together. So that was one of the, the first things we did um, from a content strategy point of view was really figure out what our standards for the community was going to be. I, I think that they've really laid a great foundational vibe for the community as well, because I think that we have actually, to my surprise, experienced a lot less incidents than we had initially anticipated. Like we've probably had one or two off the beat incidents where we actually need to moderate someone in some form or fashion. And it's usually just a, someone's a little heated and it's a misunderstanding. It's not actually someone attacking. But when I remember in the beginning of this project, I kind of felt very vulnerable in a sense that we were putting ourselves out there to say, Hey, we're queer. Come, come join us in this group, come join us in this. And this could very possibly invite trolls. We, we could very possibly be inviting people to, to abuse us, to harm us in the way that we are. We experience that outside of a safe space, right? So it was a moment where, for me and my personal identity, being able to create this space and hold space for other people who are looking for community is something that I had to accept in my own space and in my own personal identity of being queer. And I think a lot of people who come to QDC have a similar realization that we're all here because we're around a space that is at the intersection of our personal identity, but also our professional lives. And how do we how do we really um, build space in that intersection? Um, and that's something that I think is just very very fascinating. I do too. And you know, talking with community builders who are trying to figure out what I always say, you know, what what is your purpose of your community? Who is it for? And what behavioral expectations do you have? It's a, it's a whole process, right. To figure out. And I think it's especially important for communities that are created for a broader scope of people. So it might include straight cisgendered. It might include LGBTQ plus. It might include all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of lives that you have to remember that how we perceive safety can be different and how important it is to really, whether it's do research or form talk to a group, just to make sure are the people I want in this community feeling safe, especially the people that maybe I don't have that same identity or personal journey. And so I don't, I don't maybe realize it. I know that's an experience I've had to personally go through to look through the lens of different people and, and think like, would, is this enough? Is there enough clarification here that someone's going to feel safe in this community or are they going to keep walking because 
it's they've they've been through enough already in their personal life and they don't want to experience that here too especially if it's digital and there's that level of anonymity that unfortunately gives a lot of people the I hate to use the word courage but the the gumption I don't know to be horrible <laughs> you know be much more horrible than they would face to face um, so I think I mean anybody listening if you're working on guidelines community safety this is top notch I think one of the really important things about the way we approached our guidelines compared to some other code of conducts. A lot of code of conducts sort of try to satisfy, you know, the most people, right? So, you know, how are most people going to behave? What do most people want um, in terms of boundaries in this space? And uh, for us, it's really important to center the most vulnerable people in the community in our code of conduct. And so, you know, really explicitly saying things like, you know, we are going to prioritize the safety of marginalized members of our community over comfort of more privileged members, making that just part of our ethos um, so that we're not in this situation where uh, we have taken a vaguer stance on uh, an equitable community. And now we have to sort of pretend that a member coming from a place of privilege who's upset because that privilege has been challenged is as justified in their feelings as a marginalized person who's actually been harmed by something they may have done, right? So that was a really important orientation for our community as well. Yeah, I also, I mean, your onboarding also just really reinforces this. I looked at, you know, uh, you know, how to apply to join and there's a process. So you're already creating a bit of a barrier for people to kind of knock out the, maybe the bad actors that are just trying to check it out. But I love like first question, it's like, have you read our code of conduct? Do you agree? And again, this is something I recommend to people building community about all the time, because then you have this foundation, you have the receipt, right? So when something happens and they're like, I didn't know, you can be like, well, you did agree to this. So let's let's look over these guidelines to make sure you're cool with them. And if you're not, maybe this isn't the community for you. Um, and I really like that you spell out your moderation policy. And looking at yours, I was just like, this is a master class in community guidelines and moderation policies and putting those into your onboarding. So from the get-go, it's very clear. So I'm just giddy with excitement and because sadly... I love community guidelines. <laughs> yeah, that leads to a great just education that we can get from you two while we're here. You know, and you bring a design perspective. And so I think your professional training informs your thinking when you're going into this in a way that maybe other community people, you know, other community people might come in and not even think to create guidelines or not have a design-oriented mentality around how to create guidelines. So can you tell us just a little bit about your thought process, what's really important for you to have in there, how, how you've approached all that? Yeah, I think that for me at least, and this is something I kind of learned from John very early on, but it's just being very intentional about your language and, and the way that you refer to people and refer to situations and things. And there's an eloquence that John has to his writing that is able to be very straightforward and pointed without being mean or harsh or too stark. And I think the code of conduct is a really great reflection of that. Just the tone and the voice really is conversational, friendly, but also not mixing matters and kind of beating around the bush of what the what the rules really are. And I think expanding on that is really just thinking about how 
in a layman's conversation, you may refer to something and then thinking about, is there a more inclusive way? Am I leaving out or excluding people when I talk about this? And how can I approach this same sentence in a way that makes more sense and is more generalized to fit more people's lived experience? And that's something that we try to prioritize in the way that we speak about our community. I think especially because within the queer LGBT community, there are so many different identities. And as a queer design community, we kind of have one voice. So how do we make that voice represent everyone with in a way that doesn't feel like we're taking away from anyone's experience as well? So I think we've done a lot of work around making sure that we maintain a voice that feels inclusive, that feels friendly, that feels open, but also feels direct and straightforward and tells you what we really feel. Yeah, I think that intentionality is something that is a skill that you hone as a designer. This idea of crafting a, a vision and a strategy for what you want to create. And that was something that we had conversations around upfront, not just in the code of conduct conversations, but also coming up with the brand. You know, what sort of personality do we want this community to have outside of ourselves as individuals? Are we more of a professional community? Are we more of an activist community? We really landed on this really special blend that was focused more on those personal connections. And that comes through in the way we chose to brand ourselves, the way uh, we've written our code of conduct. I think the other thing that has really helped is this sort of sense of informational design uh, that you get as a designer. When you're designing you kind of have to know the hierarchy of actions a a user might want to take or information that they need to understand on on their journey throughout the thing that you're designing. And um, you can't present it all at once, right? I think that um, getting really clear on, you know, what's the most important thing about this community or what's the most important thing that somebody who wants to join it needs to know really sort of helps clarify what and who we're for in a way that makes it feel less intimidating to get started with us. I I think trying to be everything to everyone or wanting to let the community develop entirely organically ends up creating a, a hairball or a hornet's nest of a situation where, you know, maybe it's not as cohesive as it could have been if you had taken that initial stand. I'm also curious about how this translates to the people who have joined, especially early on, and their commitment to reinforcing these norms. Because, you know, you could write a terrific code of conduct, house rules, all of these things. But then, you know, it still ends up being about people showing up and actually caring enough to embody those things and then holding each other to those standards as well. So can you say a bit about the role that those first few or the first several members played and and how that's played out for you? Yeah, I think our our first members are are still our our best supporters, to be honest. And some of the people that really joined initially were kind of part of John and I's immediate Twitter circles. So it would have been people that were familiar. We were kind of initially just organically promoting the community on Twitter saying, hey, we're hanging out in the Slack. Come join us. If you're LGBTQ designer, throw up a profile on the website. Like, you know, we didn't have many goals in the beginning because we were kind of, well, we had goals, but we were kind of just like, we don't know what this is going to be in five years. We had no long-term plans. We were just like, this is something fun that we're doing right now. And it's a good project. It was those initial people that really joined that kind of helped us to craft that first voice. And 
the thing that QDC members have said all along is this is my favorite Slack because it feels authentic. It feels genuine. It feels like I can come in here and there are no stupid questions. No one is going to judge me if I ask something very basic. It's, it's always been a vibe of openness, airiness, friendliness, and, and really approachability. And that's something that I think the code of conduct helped to lay down as a foundation. And then we just kind of built on top of that. And those people are still with us today. And I think they've helped us to reinforce that that is our vibe, that is our voice, even as we've grown now to over 2000 members in our Slack. It's, it's been unbelievable that we've been able to keep that same kind of culture. It's something that we work on maintaining, but we don't try to overwork to make it feel like robotic, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think a lot of it had to do with some of the structures we put into place early. When the Slack had started up, we preceded it with a, a number of channels, basically broken down into like this channel is around a specific design topic or particular identity and putting in the descriptions who it's for and what sort of conversations happen there. And I think that gave uh, early members sort of a sense of, oh, this is this is what we use this this space for. This is what this community is for. And then they would suggest new channels and new topics and the sort of the nature of the conversations grew, but it was almost like planting a, a trellis for the community to, you know, sort of climb early on. And I think, you know, uh, there were ways in which we were very intentional and, and that shaped the community in one way. And I think there are other ways in which when we first launched, we were more organic and just sort of seeing who we could reach. And like Beck said, it was mostly people from our social circles. And so even as we grew, that's there was sort of that initial connection. And we realized at one point that the Slack channel and, and the community was representing a fairly limited slice of the queer community. It was diverse, but it was definitely not as diverse as the queer community itself because we had been really organic in uh, reaching out to new members. And so I think um, if that's something we could go in a uh, time machine and and relaunch Queer Design Club, we would have probably done more targeted outreach to communities of color or disabled queer people and really early on been intentional about that. Yeah, that's something that we are are still struggling to do better today at, basically. I think that organically, over the past couple of years of QDC's existence, like John said, we've just naturally seen that the people who gravitate towards the community even today are primarily cis and white and most likely gay men. And we've done a little bit of, of you know, outreach to specific communities, but we're really interested in forging like deeper connections with other design communities. Like we have uh, we have an ongoing partnership with Where are the Black Designers, and we also are familiar with different smaller communities like uh, API who design. But we really, you know, it's not my ultimate goal, at least, is not to make it kind of like a competition between all of these different communities of identities or anything, but really to craft a space like one unified metaverse space where everything can be unified and people can all be respected for their own identities, right? And I've been thinking about this in different forms of what does Queer Design Club evolve to be? It can't just be the same thing, right? Where does this go in the next five years? And parallel to me, where are all the other communities going as well? And are we all going to the same place? I don't know. That's a big question mark. But I think that it's really interesting because we've not done that work to be intentional in the beginning. And now we're feeling the effects of it. But we also see how necessary that space is for queer people of color, because 
in all of the data and all of the research we've done, we found that they are the most marginalized, even within the core community. So how can we write that as we go along, as we try to also forge other partnerships with other communities and build that collective space that we all dream about? What does that even look like? What does, what is that future? We're figuring it out. I mean, just being aware that, you know, that's the place you are. I love that idea of like a collective, because like you said, it shouldn't be a competition, but a collaboration. So how do you, how do you work with those other communities to benefit both groups and enrich both groups? And I'm sure, I'm sure you've, you both seem very thoughtful. So I'm sure there's some great ideas already spinning in the works. I'm curious if, if you're comfortable sharing, have you, have you thought through like what that could look like? I've been thinking, and I think the, the most base level idea I've had so far is just like a community conference and, and really putting all of these communities on one collective stage and being able to, you know, because the thing that I've noticed in the past couple of years is there's just so much overlap. The people who are in other communities are in our communities and your identity is not one thing. It's multidimensional. So how can we really embrace that overlap and that those intersections where you're bringing such unique perspectives and what does that look like, not just in the lane of queerness or the lane of blackness or the lane of Asian-ness, but what does it look like as a, as a multidimensional person? Like we have very little spaces that allow you to express dimensionality of your personality. And I'm interested in figuring out what that space looks like in the future. I, I have no idea past community conference, whatever that may turn out to be. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like the most fun conference ever made. That would be Amazing. I'm curious if you're, are you familiar with the Community Roundtable, that organization? Not really. So kind of a similar idea with the, well, you'll love them, Bex, because they're super data driven. Um, They have a lot of really great reports, you know, the state of the community industry, but it's kind of like a collective, like anybody who works in community, they have something for you and they put on courses and masterclasses and whatnot. And so people in all the different community roles, which, you know, are all over the place, depending um, the industry and everything. But anyways, you can all come there and learn. And so that might be a inspo for some, for some collective ideas. It's awesome. Yeah, it's great. I'm definitely going to check that out. Yeah. Well, and of course, I'm always happy to talk this through with anybody, anytime. I love talking community. Speaking of data, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about the reports that you do. And once again, I mean, my gosh, it's like community A+. Plus work because I know I personally am not a data person. I'm more the creative flighty kind. I like looking at the data, but I do not like compiling the data. So why don't you tell us about the data collection you've been doing and how it's helped you kind of inform programming or next steps and things like that, or what you've learned from it? The one thing that being able to have information about our community is, is just, like you said, it helps us set our goals and helps us understand where we need to focus our efforts on improving. There's a myriad of problems to touch in, in, in all of these industries and communities and things that we can solve, but we can't solve them all. So how do we really have a targeted focus on what is important to our community right now, especially the commu- the core design community, and what does that look like? And what are we positioned to take action on versus what do we need to advocate for? Our data really came out of there not being anywhere else on the internet. Um, and John can speak a little bit more to the original inspiration for the core design count. Yeah. So we were looking uh, to other design communities. And one of the more prominent ones is the AIGA. 
which does an annual uh, survey of the design industry and just sort of the state of the field in terms of where are people working, how much are they making, how satisfied are they. And only recently, I think it was 2017, was the first time they actually asked about LGBTQ status. And it was just one question. It was like checkbox, yes or no. That was the first time we we had this access to sort of dig into like, okay, what is the LGBTQ plus design experience like? And so my now husband is a is a data person. I'm also, you know, I I, I love data. I am not first and foremost a, a numbers guy, but I happen to have someone in my life who I can send spreadsheets to and, and ask uh, if anything interesting is in there. And we found some things, you know, around pay discrepancy, satisfaction um, discrepancy. One thing that was really interesting from that initial data set was around sort of the length of time in the design industry. Queer designers were newer in their career, cisgender heterosexual designers. And, you know, there, there are a number of interpretations of that, right? Like queer designers could be leaving the field earlier. And so only more junior respondents are replying, or, you know, maybe there was a big influx of queer people to the field. And those sorts of questions really made us feel like there was there was something more there that we could be looking at. We, of course, knew that uh, a single checkbox to cover all of that diversity within the queer community was also probably hiding even even more information within it if we could tease that out. And so that was really the inspiration behind the, the first queer design count, which was a survey that we ran that sort of asked a lot of the same demographic stuff. We wanted to be able to do some apples to apples comparison with AIGA, but then dug deeper into the specifics of the queer experience in the design industry and what sort of things were people in our field experiencing, what was helpful, what was harmful. And that really turned out to be super interesting and fruitful. Bex alluded to the fact that that first count really illustrated the importance of intersectional identities on your experience in queer design with you know trans people and queer people of color experiencing much more bias on the job than white cisgender men you know also pointed a way forward for you know some some concrete actions that we could take to support our community one of the things that we saw in those initial responses was that having visible out leadership in a company uh, made people feel more comfortable to be uh, out themselves. So we saw we saw a correlation between visible leadership and whether or not people were open about being LGBTQ plus themselves. We also saw that DEI programming corresponded to less experiences of bias on the job if that DEI programming addressed LGBTQ plus identities specifically. That was an interesting little tidbit where if your diversity and inclusion program only addressed gender and race, it didn't really benefit the LGBTQ plus community. And in some ways, you know, potentially uh, sent a tacit message that, well, this community is, is okay to be biased against, right? And so those were both things that we could then take to the companies that were reaching out to us saying they wanted to support queer designers. How can they do that? And we can say, hire queer leadership and make sure your DEI programming addresses sexuality and gender identity. 
I think the the other interesting thing is now that we understand the importance of this data, it's kind of put the groundwork down for us to continue this research. And what I would love to do in the next five years is really use this research as an industry benchmark and really understand how the needle is changing over time. Maybe we do it every year, maybe we do it every other year. But I think that it, it gives us a good sample set to really refer back to and say, hey, in the past five years, we've not seen any improvement on how LGBTQ people are being treated at work. Um, we have not seen companies actually hiring more queer leadership, even though they're verbally committing to doing that. And and we have this data that really backs up our, our assumptions. So I think it's a really important thing that we continue this work. And the flip side of that is the survey is not just quantitative, right? Is we also left a lot intentionally left a lot of open-ended questions for people to qualitatively write about their experience as well. And I love it because I think people really needed that space to, for someone to ask. And this is especially true of what I've been noticing in our 2021 survey, which for the first time includes a COVID section and ask people about their experience during the pandemic and how your the pandemic affected your work and your core identity. And what we found a lot of data around was that in the pandemic, during the, the middle of lockdown and quarantines, a lot of queer people had to return to home, to homes where they were pre- previously maybe not accepted, to homes where they were not allowed to be openly and visibly queer, to places that put them in a, a poor mental and emotional state because they could not continue living their authentic lives. Um, a lot of people lost work during the pandemic. A lot of people lost houses. It just there's so many stories that we've collected in this year's survey that more than anything, I think people are willing to write in their testimonials because they're looking for a place of refuge as well. And that's what the community survey has also become is it's not just become about we are interested in the numbers, but we're also interested in having people feel seen and heard. And that's something that we also reflect in the report. So when you read through our, our report, you'll see some some of the, the qualitative insights and you'll see um, tidbits from anonymized tidbits of what people have said about their experience relating to these topics. But it really helps us to drive home that human element of our community and help people understand that behind these numbers are real stories. And these these aren't just anonymized figures that we've made up behind the scenes. Like these are real life experiences that people are having. And this is why we need to take action and advocate for better conditions for LGBTQ people. I think that human element is really so important. Something that is missing from a lot of other sort of community reports. One of the things that I think we struggle with or, you know, took a lot of effort to decide how to address is actually trying to like measure identity. We're asking people to do checkboxes or free form text answers to describe something that may be very fluid or hard for them to put into words. And there's a real tension between the sort of clarity and cut and dry nature uh, you need in a data set to make it meaningful and the complexity of, of real human lives. The fact that we feel like we need a huge data set to get people to care about a set of human experiences is something that is itself something I feel a little bit of resentment towards, you know, this bias towards data instead of, you know, people's lived experiences and what people from various communities tell you being enough to believe them, right? Um, And I think that was one of the things that we really wanted to get out of this was something that people could have to back them up when they're sharing their own experience and say, like, it's not just me. 
This is something that's happening to other people. It's, it's documented, right? I'm not alone in this. It's a shame that we, we need data to do that. But while we do, I'm, I'm really glad that the count is able to provide that. Yeah. Well, and I think too, and I completely empathize with the the sentiment, like we shouldn't have to compile all this data to show people what's painfully obvious to our community. That would be very frustrating. And I also wonder on, on the bright side of going through that process is people within your community being validated to be like, oh my gosh, look at this statistic. Like this is 80, you know, 86% of people who identify as bisexual. And I am kind of making this up. I was just looking at your 2019 report. So big grade assault here, everyone. But like, if I identify as bisexual, I, there's 86% people reported that they were treated differently at work because of it. And to see that, like, if that was my identity to see that, that would be really powerful to me. It would be enraging, you know, cause it's a very high number, but it would also, there's something about feeling it's not just me and maybe I can talk about this because it is a common thing that seems like a great start anyways at acknowledging it. And then, okay, what can we do to drop this number as low as possible, right? And, and recognizing that if there's that many people that identify this as a real thing, then there's that many people who might have a motivation to participate in some kind of, some kind of action to change that. Absolutely. So unacceptable as the status quo may be, having that number tells you, you know, hey, there's a lot of us out there. Let's find each other and let's take action. I'm curious. So kind of a final question for me anyways, uh, regarding the survey, because you obviously get some really impactful data through this, just from a backend admin side, like how are you distributing this and what kind of participation are you getting? How do you get your community I think your community sounds super healthy and engaged, so it's probably not super hard, but I'm just curious what your process is for you know, announcing it, distributing it, getting enough responses. The first year um, we did a bit of, you know, our community was a lot smaller, so we had to do a lot more external outreach and um, we, we really bootstrapped it the first year. I have to say, John and I did the whole thing on like $300. So <laughs> thank you, AngelList by the way, uh, AngelList sponsored it the first year. But we did it on like 300 bucks. We paid for one of those survey softwares and we really just started um, telling everyone about it. We sent a few emails to press outlets to try to get them to cover it. People were starting to gauge some interest, but really just relied on the design community and social media to be able to amplify this. And we came pretty close at, uh, how many responses did we get? Close to 900 the first year. And then this year, the thing that we did differently, and now that it's our second year doing it, we had a bit, you know, we had one of them under our belt. So we definitely had something to show and say, this is what we're going to produce again. <laughs> that was great. And uh, we put together a little bit of a sponsorship deck and we actually were able to raise about $8,000 to be able to produce this one. So this year we, we hired an analyst, we hired a writer, we were able to put some money onto Facebook ads, not Facebook, Instagram ads and Twitter ads to be able to reach to more LGBTQ designers. I've specifically reached out to partners in certain communities to be able to reach more people, especially queer people of color. I think I've been focusing our campaign on making sure that queer people of color understand that there is a survey that they know. I think I always feel a little bit like 
because I'm aware that our natural audience is just gay white men, we have to put in that effort to go further and find people who don't directly engage with our community in Slack or on email or something. So I've been trying to partner with other communities to spread the word about the survey. Um, We ended this year at close to 1,500 respondents. So that's pretty awesome. And we are, you know, we're analyzing and, and trying to put out the best and most inclusive survey that we've done yet. So really organic is the answer. <laughs> really organic and just um, trying to reach people where we can. That's, yeah. Organic's often the best way. Yeah, I mean, I think that we get a really genuine set of responses from people that way. You know, it doesn't feel like this is something that's overly promoted. This is something that there's a ton of money behind. I think just the fact that it feel it still feels very homemade is the vibe that we wanted to give because we are homemade. Like we're, that's it. Like that's who we are. Yeah. Well, when you have the freedom, you don't have to have the stuffy corporate style. Like you can, you can have fun with it. It's a design community for queer folks. Like it's the, per, it's, it should be like pretty and beautiful and well thought out. And, you know, so the community identifies with it. Um, cool. Well, we are going to transition a little. Tony is going to lead you both. We've never done this with two people at once, so we'll just play it by ear, but we are going to go into our rapid fire questions. There is no math, thankfully. It was great. You know, I mean, there could, there could be math, but, uh, math. but <laughs> it's Friday. No. <laughs> All right. So we're going to have, uh, you know, just both of you can just jump in with your answers as you see fit. Whoever's ready first can just jump right in and uh, this will be fun. First off, starting off, we are going to talk about what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were younger? An actor. I was very, very uh, into the idea of being on stage or in movies when I was young. For me, as cliche as it sounds, when I consciously wanted to be something, it was an artist or a designer. (laughs) Yeah, amazing. I had no idea what that meant at that time, though. I didn't know you could be a designer for a job until my mid-20s, so actor until then. I feel like I knew that those jobs existed, but I I feel like there were jobs that I just never thought I could actually go for for a long time. Cool. And uh, let's talk about community. How do you define community? A place where people keep coming together to share amongst... A place where people keep coming together around a shared experience. And keep coming together is the the key phrase there. You got to... It's not a one-time thing. (laughs) Yeah, I would say for me, I think of it as uh, sort of a network of relationships around something shared, whether it's a profession or an identity or a set of values. And then once you have the community, can make space. I think um, that's one of the really interesting things about the queer community is that um, it's not geographic. Uh, You know, we really are. Uh, everywhere. And, and we, we've come together as a community, not just because we're nearby. There's something that really connects us across uh, geographies. It is really amazing when you're a part of a community where there's a unifying identity that's not geographically based that, you know, you can go anywhere in the world and find people who you can connect with and feel some sense of, you know, hey, oh, yeah, you're a part of that community, too. Awesome. You know, it's a nice feeling. All right, so on to our bucket lists. And our first question for you is, what is something that's on your bucket list that you have done? 
skiing at the end of the world. So I usually live in Argentina, um, in Buenos Aires. And recently my partner and I went down to the tippy point of the continent, which is this small town called Ushuaia. It's the literal end of the of the continent. It's basically the end of South America. And it's always cold. It's like where you get the, the cruise ship to go to Antarctica. And we went skiing down there and it was incredible. I want to have a whole side convo <laughs> about this. <laughs> <laughs> when you said the end of the world, I was like, oh, like like if the earth is flat, like on the edge of the yeah. <laughs> naturally. <laughs> That's amazing though. I'd love to go visit one day. I got married. I guess I don't I don't keep a much of a bucket list, but not dying alone was was on there and I'm on track. So I'm gonna consider that one checked. Uh yeah, that totally counts. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's pretty great. I feel like there are probably a lot of people who don't think to put that on their bucket list, but that absolutely counts. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I uh, was in Massachusetts for college when the state legalized gay marriage. And so I, I never took it for granted that that would happen. Um, yeah. I was going to say, I feel like, right. You, you grew up, you know, with the, the feeling that it might, you know, to hope that it would be possible. And here we are. Yay. Legally anyways, according to the government. Yeah, right. Yeah, according to the, the, for whatever that means. Yeah. Let's talk about your bucket list, things that you have not yet done. Road trip through like the American West or road trip America, I guess I would say. Yeah. Like a Route 66 kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know. I've, I've never seen, I've only seen like the, the coasts. I don't know what's actually in the middle of your country. <laughs> oh, well, stop by Colorado on your way. We'll go ski. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think mine would have to be some kind of travel. I've I've done so little of it compared to some people. So, uh, you know, maybe when it's not quite as mask intensive, there's quite a bit of the world that I'd still like to see in person. Amen to that. On the topic of books, what is a book that you're just absolutely loving right now or that you just love to recommend? I just picked up one Cafe Con Libros here in Brooklyn that I found by a Trinidadian author, by Caroline McKenzie, I think is her name. Um, and the book is called One Year of Ugly on the first page. I literally just picked it up. So I will let you know how it goes. <laughs> I would have to recommend to any designers uh, listening, uh, How Design Ruined the World by Mike Montero. He is my former boss and mentor and a, and a good friend and I designed the artwork uh, for for the cover, actually, but it's a a really good look at what can design what design can do when you aren't intentional and responsible about it. So I think it's really important for people in the field uh, to think about. Oh yeah, lots of implications there. I feel like we could have a whole whole long conversation about that. And finally, how do you want to be remembered? Well, that's a deep one. Hopefully, well. My husband, in his vows, described me as somebody who is always fighting for other people. And that really moved me. And I would like to actually live up to that description. And so hopefully people remember me as uh, feisty and also, you know, someone whose heart was in the right place and was feisty for the right reasons. You can see who's the much more thoughtful one between the both of us. I'm just like, hope. Hope people like me. <laughs> I mean, I also hope they like me. But. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think I think I think there's nothing wrong with just hoping to be remembered fondly. I think that that's poignant. Finally, finally, how do we find you on the internet, personally, professionally? Where do we find your awesome community guidelines? 
Give us your links. Uh, you can find me personally at HeyJovo, H-E-Y-J-O-V-O on Twitter and Instagram or jovo.design if you want to see my work and some of my writing around design. And then you can find Queer Design Club at queerdesign.club. Um, you can find our community guidelines there um, down at the bottom of the, of the homepage. You can find the code of conduct. I am Becky Brooker on Twitter, and you can find me at rebeccabrooker.com on the interwebs. But please do follow us, Queer Design Club, on all of our handles, um, and you can you can search for us as well on, on the Google. Gotta love the Googles. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. It's been so, so, so great. It's been really great. Thank, Thank you. you. It's been a great combo. Okay, so that's our conversation uh, with Bex and John from Queer Design Club. So, so useful. So, I don't know, affirming? Is that the right word? Jill, how are you feeling? Feeling good. What a lovely crew. I always love collaborators that meet through Twitter. I just love when there's like a Twitter, like a productive Twitter relationship that just comes from people who are, you know, follow the same hashtag or, you know, have the same interests. Yeah. People who start their friendships on Twitter and then turn it into like a legitimate friendship. It, it gives me like a sense of glee that I can't describe because 10 years ago, that would sound really creepy. <laughs> and now it's just like, it's a legitimate way to find friends and colleagues and forge relationships in a positive way. I love that your geography doesn't matter. And so if you live in a culture or environment that isn't aligned with your interests, it doesn't stop you from finding connection about those things. It can get pretty niche, you know, like you can you can be specific and there are other people out there and it's not like the olden days where you might have to like put an ad in the paper or who even knows what people did, right? To organize, you can create a hashtag. And it can spin off in a lot of different directions. You can see how with Queer Design Club that you could have sub clubs that spin off from that group for folks with different kinds of identities where they want to be able to find more folks that they can talk to who share that in common. And what a wonderful challenge to have that niche of a group. And like you said, it will even from there subdivide into smaller, more specific niches. And so many people want to have a big, all-encompassing community. And this is a great example of how going the opposite and having a very niche community can actually serve both yourself and your members so much more. Yeah. And then building on that with the proper documentation and communication. I know we could talk a lot about the importance of a code of conduct, house rules, the member guidelines, those kinds of things. But it really does send an important message about the intention that you've put into a community. You know, Daniel uh, Apong that we had interviewed earlier from Courage Collective talks about not only are we trying to be welcoming to everyone, we have designed this for you. We've designed this with you in mind. And I think when you document something right up front to say, this is how we expect the folks here to behave, 
And that is because we are on a mission to create an environment that achieves a certain degree of safety and trust. Yeah. Member safety, feeling safe is so important. And especially if you don't identify as queer or in a any sort of marginalized group, quote unquote, you probably have a blind spot to it. But regardless, they started with very concise rules of engagement, very concise code of conduct. And they just set themselves up for success because someone coming in who might not totally understand who's running it, what's really going on, when they see all those pieces together, they're going to feel safe enough to share. And that's really important with a potential community member. And also, this doesn't have to be harsh. It can be done in a way that's very friendly and accessible. And you know what they said is that we can be friendly and conversational, but not beating around the bush and being direct about what, what's okay and what's not. And I feel like that just makes everything so much easier for everybody to get on the same page about. You know, and, and getting into a little bit of the design side of things and the language there, they John said something about you can't present all the information at once. I feel like that is a nuanced thing for a community organizer to learn how to do because we can be so tempted when somebody joins our community to try to just dump everything we think they need to know into their brains immediately right away. I think it's just really useful to think in terms of how do I how do I structure what I tell people? So I tell them the most important parts first and then the other parts when the time is right. As you're talking about this, I'm like I'm so guilty of that. It's so <laughs> easy to to just be like, "Hey, welcome. Here's this, here's that. Don't forget about this event." And everyone's just like, "Whoa." <laughs> okay. I'm going to I'm going to contradict myself for a minute because I will also say that oftentimes when I join a new community or even something like if I, you know, if I rent an Airbnb, this is a good example. When I rent an Airbnb, I want to make sure I know exactly what I'm getting into and exactly what's expected of me. Airbnbs are a great example of they provide probably all the information. You just have to want to find it. I think they do a pretty good job of not bombarding you, but they're very clear on where to find the resources and find the answers. And maybe that's a good takeaway for us as community builders, right? Do the same. Make it very clear. Here's here's the tome. <laughs> Hopefully not a tome. Hopefully a very pretty Notion document that has tons of information that you can look at if you want to, or if you're more like me and you just like to shoot from the hip and see where it goes uh, for better or worse, you know, it's there and you're probably never going to look at it, but there it is. I mean, I want my community members to look at it, of course. Uh, naturally, naturally. <laughs> but am I the type of person that does that? <laughs> and I'll just say one last thing, which is if you are designing your organization to be supportive of the LGBT members of your organization or of your community. One thing, you know, we heard a couple th pieces there that I think are really valuable. One is that if you're going to conduct a DEI study or DEI training, that you want to make sure that you are training specifically for LGBT and that having visible leadership that identifies in that realm is really, really helpful. It goes really far. So just some handy things to keep in mind. Absolutely. And that about does it. Hope you enjoyed the conversation with Bex and John of Queer Design Club. And let us know how you are incorporating what you've learned into what you're doing. What are you putting into your member agreements, into your house rules, your codes of conduct? Where are you getting your inspiration from? 
Let us know. We're Team SPI on Twitter, and we'd love to hear from you. This has been the Community Experience. For more information on this episode, including links and show notes, head over to smartpassiveincome.com slash listen. So if you want to look up Queer Design Club, they are on Twitter and Instagram at Queer Design Club. No dots, no underscores, no dashes, just Queer Design Club on Twitter and Instagram. And for their website, it's queerdesign.club because .club is a top-level domain, and that's cool. So, queerdesign.club. Our executive producer is Matt Gartland. Our series producers are David Grabowski and senior producer Sarah Jane Hess. Editing and sound design by Duncan Brown. Music by David Grabowski. See you next time.